speak to you, Lord, and this morning that you'll empower his word by your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. So this week we are continuing where we were, um, and going to be for the whole semester, in this one story of God. Rather than just knowing the stories, we're going to understand the story that God is writing from page one to the end, understanding how he has desired us and loved us, and even in our fall, and even when we abandon him, we're going to see that he is there and he is for us. Last week, we understood in Genesis 1 that before everything, God was. God existed, and then creation came to be. By the word of his mouth, he began to create, and out of nothing, everything came to be. And not only did it come to be, it came to be, and it was very good. Remember, every step along the way is God is forming and God is filling. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, all the way culminating when, when he makes man and he puts his spirit and his image in us, it is very good. So we learn that he exists, that he created, that he is good, and that he shares his image with us. And the whole Bible is about God's relationship with his image bearers. And that brings us to Genesis 2. We're going to start there this morning, verse 8. So then God has these people, his prized possession, his climax of creation, and it says, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. In the middle of the garden is this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, we're going to jump to it. God begins to set some limits. He took man and he put him in that garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. So we have this luscious garden full of everything uh, that we can ever enjoy. And then there's one rule, and we, we don't understand exactly why, but God has made a rule that we must not eat of this tree. Now, I was reading this week, and this tree is not some sinister tree cloaked in fog at all times, scaring the neighborhood children because of its branches and its moss. It's not some thorny tree that you're uh, wanting to avoid and stay away from. No, it was a good tree. God doesn't create anything that is not good. So this tree that exists is, is there in the garden, in the middle of the garden, these two trees. But God says, no, do not eat of it, establishing limits and responsibility for us. It was a pleasing to the eye tree, and it had pleasant fruit, but it was off limits. Then let's end chapter 2, verse 25. It says this, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So what we have at the end of Genesis 2 is a culmination of paradise. God has created, and it is very good. God has established a place for us to live, and it is awesome. He has set one rule that we avoid, but everything else is for us, to bless us, for us to enjoy. This is how God intends life for his people forever. 
This is how he wants to, for us to enjoy the blessing of what he has given us. There is relationship and communion with God and with other man. This is how life should be. But we know that the story goes downhill very quickly. Chapter 3, verse 1. But the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I want to pause there for just a second. The serpent is more crafty than every other of the animals made. Now, what we need to understand is that the serpent still in its natural state is good. But the serpent is being uh, manipulated and indwelled by this spirit of Satan, this evil spirit that is causing it to then be used for evil. This is not, oh, God made all these other things good and then he made serpents. No. This is a good creation that is being manipulated and mutilated by Satan. And then we have the temptation. Now, what we must understand is that temptation is not sin. That's hard for us sometimes. Yes, you're going to be tempted to say this, do that, act there. No, temptation, sure, is normal. Genesis, I mean, Luke 17, Jesus says, you will be tempted. Jesus, Matthew 4, is tempted. Temptation is not sin. It is how we respond to temptation to choose whether it is sin or not. Eve is tempted by the serpent when he asks at the end of verse 1, did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? In the literal Hebrew there, it's that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. So the serpent now is setting up this world that God has put you in this paradise, but you can't touch, right? It's like the little kid walking in the nice shop with their mom. Hands behind your back, don't touch anything. You're not as valuable as they are. He's saying, no, 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 you can't eat anything. Eve responds, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, the, the serpent is setting up this idea, can God be trusted? For the first time in the Bible, we have this questioning of God. Is he to be trusted? Is he right? Is he worth listening to? The woman says, we can eat of any tree in the garden. But, verse 3, God did say you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit, or hang on, of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So a few things is happening with Eve. First, she remembers the teaching of God, but then she manipulates it. She remembers, yes, we can eat of anything, but she's more focused on the limits that God has for her than the blessings that God has for her. It's what I can't do that is consuming Eve's thought, not all the things that I can do. She is so concerned by, I can't do this. This is off limits that it's even becoming the focus, not only of her mind, but it's the focus of geography for her. The tree of life, it says, was in the midst of the garden, but now she only sees the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle. Her life revolves around this one limitation that God has given her. And then she adds to the conditions of God. We shall not touch it, nor surely we will die. You see, she's adding on now man-made religion instead of the word of God. 
She is choosing to further limit what is available in the life that is pleasing to God. And she is now pulling back from all the bounds that he has given us to going, well, if we touch it, now we will be in trouble as well. She is turning God into a cruel taskmaster, seeking for us to fail or to fall rather than pouring out blessing. Verse 4, the serpent says, you will not surely die. We've asked, is God right? Is God um, trusted now? We're going to ask, is he truthful? There's a direct contradiction by the serpent here. God says, 2.17, you will surely die. Serpent says, 3.4, you won't die. Is God truthful? Then he jumped, he continues. Not only can he be trusted, can he be, or is he truthful? Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So now we've moved from is God to be trusted and is God truthful to now is God selfish? Is he withholding uh, love from us? Is he hiding the best stuff that we should really fully experience life here on earth? Sure, he wants to give us some good things, but he won't give us all good things. The best way I can think about this is um, we got a game called Mancala a few years ago. And I briefly read through stuff, and the whole goal of the game is to get the most marbles. So, like, I blew through the instructions, like, Carlin, we can just figure this out. Let's just go for it, right? So we start playing, and she wins every single time because she knew a rule that I didn't know. And she wasn't willing to tell me that rule. So then one day, after losing so many times and probably watching YouTube videos on strategy of Mancala so I can beat my wife, I end up realizing I have misunderstood, and there is a cheat code out there, a, a new rule that I was not playing by. And now I win every time, most of the time. We don't play as much anymore. Uh, it's not nearly as fun anymore. Eve is kind of asking, is God intentionally withholding the trust? Is God just giving us good when great is the cost? The question doubt. The seeds of wonder, is God good? Is he truthful? Is he trustworthy? This is what is going through the mind of Eve as she is tempted. She's intrigued, and in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired because it makes you wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve abandons the word of God and chooses to trust in what she can see, perceive, and discern. She says, you know what? I don't care about what God has established as good and bad for me. I know what is best. It's delightful to my eyes, then it must be good for me. If it looks good, if it seems good, if it feels good, then it must be good, right? Because after all, I choose what is good, I choose what is right, I am in control, I am in charge, I am autonomous, I am independent, I am my own God. 
How 21st century are these? Exhibiting postmodern tendencies already, right? I can do whatever I want. Let's eliminate absolutes. Let's eliminate these rules that are too restrictive. I can do whatever I want. I will abandon this ultimate truth. I will abandon the word of God. I will abandon his order and his rules. And I will do whatever feels right to me. I can justify it because I am in charge of my own self. So Eve looks with her eyes, determines that it's delightful. It looks tasty. It is tasty. I'm going to take and eat. Because I am my own God. Don't we hear the same things today? Sin's too subjective. I mean, who's really to determine what sin is? Rules, too restrictive. We should be able to live how we want to live. Wrath of God, that's too harsh. Surely he can't act like that. His law and order, that's antiquated. No. We don't need to still follow that. That's Old Testament. If we're going to do that, then we can't eat this. We can't have a tattoo. We probably shouldn't even cut our hair. I mean, how do we, how do we know that that's really truthful? Instead, we now live in a culture that says, you want it? Go get it. You think it's good for you? Okay, well, take it. That, that's who you want to love? Go for it. And we've abandoned what God has established because we know what's best. We're just like Eve. If we think it's going to benefit us, make us happy, make us healthy, make us whole, if it will complete us, then we need to do it. We must be missing out. God is withholding from us the best blessings of life. We fear like Eve that God is holding back, that we're missing out, that we're not fully experiencing all that we can until we just take and eat whatever we choose. Because God's way can't be the best way. There must be more, more to find, more to experience, more pleasure, more happiness, more love, more fun, more everything. So we take, we eat, and we share. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but do you notice the collateral damage of Eve's choice? She not only takes and eats, but then she hands it off. Let me do this too. Adam is fully uh, culpable for his choice, but he's also tempted by his wife. See, what we need to take from that is, uh, very rarely does your and I sin stay in just side of us. My sinfulness starts damaging negatively the people around me. When I am selfish, it harms those nearby. When I am focused only on myself, my neighbor and my family experience harm because of it. Your sin has effects. So, what actually happened that day in the garden? One commentator says it this way. Dissatisfied with their humanness, the couple reached for godhood. Life in paradise wasn't enough. I want to be God. Life that is fully blessed and taken care of with safety, security, fun, that's not enough for me. I need to be in control. He's going on to say, in lusting after a throne that was not theirs, they lost the privileges they already had. The sin of Adam and Eve is more than just mistakenly eating a poisonous fruit. No, it's disregarding the word of God and seeking to be your own God. 
That's the original sin. That's the sin you and I struggle with and choose every single day. Consequences show up immediately. Verse 7. Their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. From 2.25, naked and unashamed, seven verses later, now they are concealed and hiding because they have chosen to live their own way and all of this uh, freedom and blessed life has been removed and now they are cowering behind bushes, covered in loincloths, fearing God, who once they had great communion and relationship with. Why? Because they wanted to replace Him in their life. The first married couple who rightfully could and should feel no shame being naked with one another are covering themselves around each other. God goes on to punish. All are at fault. The serpent and all the creatures, it says, are going to be punished in creation. The serpent is removed of his legs and limbs, which if you can think of a snake being able to walk, is terrifying. So that's a punishment we're for. He now crawls around or moves around his belly, it says. The woman experiences pain that we know to this day. The first is pain in childbirth. I've heard it's not that bad. They're just kind of making a bigger deal than it is. No. The consequences of this is painful and felt every day in labor and delivery rooms. But it goes beyond that. There's a broken relationship with husbands. And we too experience that every day. As many of you come from broken homes or come from homes that are on the brink of it, you know the pain that is experienced because relationship with spouse has now been consequences continue to Adam he was to work the land what was going to be fertile soil is now futile work weeds thrive and trees wilt what he was going to have dominion over and subdue is now going to struggle against him every single day when he was going to just have choice at what do you want to eat tonight now he's going to struggle to even find anything these are the curses that we experience Every day. So what do we learn from this story? The fallenness of man that we experience even today comes from the first choice. The choice to distrust God. To wonder, is he truthful? To replace him in our lives and to believe that he's not good. See, it wrecks the whole rest of the story. Honestly, if sin never showed up, then the Bible would just be a few pages of, oh, wow, he made another garden that's just awesome. Oh, wow, this has been growing, and this is great, and everybody's multiplying, and it's just amazing enjoyment. We'll read about that in Revelation 22. But, but we get all the in-between because sin comes and infiltrates the world through our actions and do not be naive to think that you could have said no to the fruit because you don't. You're presented the fruit every single day and you choose it every single day. We're gluttons of that tree. 
sin squandered everything that we were created to experience. Seeking what was not ours has caused us to miss on what out miss out on what was. Relationships wrecked. Communion with God now is fear, shame, hiding. What once was harmony with one another is bickering and fighting. So is this just a bad chapter of the Bible? Is this just Parks and Rec season one, just skip it and start in two? Like, should we just kind of move on and just go, you know what? Man, that one sucked, all right? Like, let's just talk about something better. Or can we see seeds of hope and grace throughout? I think we can. One, we realize God is still gracious and is still loving. Should they have died that day? Absolutely. Will we die? Yes. The inevitability of that choice to causing death is going to be experienced by us. Sadly, this last year has brought that to mind more than we could ever imagine. However, God doesn't just kill them immediately on that day. No. Why? He delays their death so that he can provide salvation. He is delaying what is inevitable so that we can come to a place of knowing him and being redeemed by him. We see that beginning in Genesis 3.15. It is called the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first instance of the gospel. And it is found all the way in Genesis 3.15. It says in the cursing of the serpent that... The serpent, you will strike the hill, you will strike the hill, you will strike the hill. However, the son of the woman will, and I like the way the NIV says it better than the ESV, will crush your head. Sydney put up two weeks ago, right, the meme, it was great, of Michael Scott asking the question, as Dwight has a concussion and he's burned his foot with bacon and his George Foreman, and he asked the question, what's more... uh, painful or bad, or I don't remember the word, a foot injury or a head injury? And we all understand it's a head injury, right? The the serpent is going, I am striking the heel, I am striking the heel, I am trying to harm people, to pull them away from God. And yet, the son of the woman will come, who we read as the son of God, will come and will crush his head. God has a plan, and his plan to overcome the power that Satan has in this world will be fulfilled, and he's going to heaven giving us a clue in Genesis 3.15. Finally, this is really what I want to land on today. God pursues us even in our sin. We skipped over verse 8. Verse 7, they now cover themselves with loincloths. Verse 8, what does it say? They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife did what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Shame says, hide yourself. If God sees you, he will no longer love you. He will no longer accept you. If God knows what you have done and how you have sinned, that he will no longer have a relationship with you, you are doomed. It is over. So they hide themselves. This week I was meeting with a guy, uh, and over lunch we were discussing that verse, those hard verses where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. All these people that said, oh, yeah, I've lived for you. I've been following you. And he says, no, 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 depart from me. You you did not live a life that pleases me or follows me or puts your faith in me. And we were talking about how terrifying those verses are because then it begins to question our salvation. Am I doing enough like it relies on me? 
Am I uh, wise enough? Do I open my Bible enough? Am I, am I good enough, God? And then it dawned on me. We have a really poor view of God. See, we think of God like how he describes Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 Your adversary, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those to devour. Someone to devour. And I fear, students, that we think of God in similar ways. We think waiting for the That way he can say, yeah, you're out of luck. Eh, you disqualified yourself. Oh, that was the last chance. We've, we've put God in this place seeking to prey on us. Rather, he pursues us. He desires us. Even though he knew they had sinned, they had eaten of the fruit, what is he doing? He is walking around, and in verse 9 says, where are you guys? I want to be with you. I miss you. He knows everything that has happened. And yet he pursues them. Even in their sin, even in their hiding, even when they've abandoned him, even when they avoid him. All right. I taught this a few years ago at a far retreat, but I think we need to hear it again. God is saying in chapter 3 at the end, I love you as you are, not as you should be. Not as you pretend to be. Not the version you portray to everybody else. I know both sides of you. I know who you really are. And I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Sitting next to those guys. Walking around looking for you. I know you haven't prayed in weeks. I know you haven't opened your Bible this year. I know you've promised to stop looking up that. I know that you said in small group you're going to stop gossiping, and yet here you are. I know your addictions. I know you said I'll never do it again. I know your history with drugs and doubts and terrible thoughts. I know your sex life. I know your doubts, your fears, your thoughts, your deeds. I know who you to pretend to be, and I know who you actually are. I know that you're merely a whitewashed tomb. Beautiful on the outside and dead bones on the inside. I know the game you're playing. I know the lies you believe, the lies that you tell, the lies that you portray. And you know what? I love you. I always loved you. My love doesn't change for you. You're fully exposed. You're naked. You're known. You can't hide it from me. But you don't have to. I love you still. Shame tells us we need to hide and conceal, that if we are known, then we cannot be loved. God says, I'm not like shame. I know you fully and I love you fully. And you can't change it. The real question he is asking is, will you believe me? The sin in the garden was a failure to believe God. To receive salvation, it is an act to believe. Just stay in the faith that God has you. 
God creates very good earth. Filled with everything we need not only to survive but to thrive. But he puts one limit. And that one limit we can't live with. So we break it over and over again. Trusting ourselves, not our God. We take, we eat, and we sleep. Fear of missing out is greater than faith in our God. And the collateral advantage of that one choice is inconsequential. And yet through it all, God loves, he makes a way, and he pursues us still. This is the story of God and the hope he tells his people. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what bush you're hiding in, love for you still stands in the worst of moments he's still available he is calling out he'll even close the book let's pray let me pray for us um, and then we're going to sing a song at the end a song that's super familiar to everybody but a song that we just know they need to hear this morning Lord, as we have read the text of the fall, our abandonment of you as God and our choice to be our own God, Lord, we pray for forgiveness for how we have abandoned you, how we have abused what you have given us. Lord, we pray that your grace is sufficient for all of our sin. That though we are terrible, vile people, you know us and you love us. Lord, may that truth resonate in the hearts of every student in here today. That they go home knowing that their sin is real, but God's grace is real as well. So Lord, um, I pray that that conviction and truth rests on us today. That we live in response to it every day. And that we don't allow shame to take residence and to rule and reign, causing us to hide rather than confess causing us to feel that we're inadequate and unqualified to even speak to you, Lord, will you shut that voice up and allow us to run to you and realize you're running to us. Lord, we thank you for your word and the goodness that it teaches us. Continue to teach us from your story how it shows us who you are and how you love us. It's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. Here's what I want you to do before we stand and sing. I want you to um, I want you to repeat to yourself internally. I am known and I am loved. I am known I am loved. Now I want you to say that with me. I am known 
and I am loved. We'll do it again. I am known, and I am loved. Now I want you to look at the person beside you. And I want you to tell them you are known, and you are loved. Now I know we smiled that time, and we laughed at that one. Now I want you to look them in the eyes, because there is seriousness that we're dealing with. And I want you to tell them you are known, and you are loved. I hope you walk out of here today believing that. We're going to stand and sing of an amazing grace that has reminded us we are known and we are loved. So let's do that. i
the students. Shame wins when you stay in secrecy and silence. Let's not do that. This is a community where you are welcome to share, where you can be fully known and fully loved. Will you put it to the test? Confess and feel God's grace tangibly. So that's what I challenge you with. Um, I want to let you know that here in 15 minutes, uh, we're going to be celebrating. Cooper, if you'll go ahead and pull those lights up. We're going to be celebrating the baptism.